Welcome to Trinity Sermons. Here at Trinity Church Streetsville, we want to share messages that inspire you in your faith journey as we learn together to love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. Now, this is episode three of our sermon series, Jesus is the Question. Today, we are fortunate to have guest preacher with us, Reverend Peter Blundell, and today he will be preaching about the question Jesus asks his disciples, where is your faith? He asks this question when they all find themselves in a bad storm out at sea. Now, before we begin, please make sure to take a minute to follow our podcast so that you can stay up to date on all of our future episodes. We hope you enjoy the sermon today, and God bless. Our reading is from Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, They asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Trinity, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you. It's been, I think, six years since I was here. I don't know where. Who remembers six years ago? COVID. It's all a blank, isn't it? Uh, my name is Peter, um, and it's a privilege to be able to share the word with you. I think they had too much fun making that video, uh, but it's great stuff. Lots of questions, hey? But let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the spirit-inspired, inerrant scriptures. We invite you to challenge us where we have become comfortable, but we implore you to comfort us where we're being challenged and in the storms of life. And we ask this confidently in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, there are a few crazy folk out there. I've met them. They enjoy storms. I've been caught up in a hurricane right in the middle of it. It's not fun. It's awful. Some of you are going to seek that. There are hurricane seekers. Good luck to them. In life, we have storms that aren't just physical. They're the real deal. They come in. They smack us around. And they can leave us really broken. But often when we look back, we discover that we've learned things during the storm that we never would have learned if life had just been calm. So there's a number of things we're going to learn from this storm that occurred for the disciples and Jesus that day on the Sea of Galilee. But before we go there, and I hope you do have these notes somewhere near you, in front of you. Um, there's a key phrase that I put right at the top of these notes. It's a phrase or an understanding that occurs right throughout Scripture from the beginning. It appears most prominently with Abraham and onwards. It continues, and it is actually the answer to this question, 
is the way we would deal or not deal with issues and crises and fear and worry. And the question is this, it's very simple. Will the Lord provide for me, for us, and will he protect me? Will he protect us? Because if you believe that he can do that, then an awful lot of the fears that we have go away. Okay, I don't have to worry about that. That was the, the focus of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. He said, what are you worried about these things for? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things that your father knows that you need will be given to you as well. So if we can trust him, we will discover that God is a faithful God because he is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And I'm going to come back to that phrase throughout this talk. Hopefully by the end of it, you'll go, yes, we know what you're going to say. But the idea is that we appropriate for ourselves. You see, every single person, every single generation, without exception, has to learn this for themselves. There aren't shortcuts. There's no such thing as second-hand faith. We've got to learn it ourselves. It was true for Jesus' disciples. They had to learn this on the lake that day. It's true for us as well. That's why, for example, the Lord's Prayer. We all know the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to say it later in the service if you're not familiar with it. The latter part of the Lord's Prayer has four uh, prayer requests, five, I think, prayer requests, but three of them, at least, are about the Lord's asking the Father to provide for us daily bread, to protect us from temptation and evil. So let's get to this, this storm, this passage that we had read out. And I think the first thing to notice, this can come as a surprise if we don't study it, is that it was the Lord who led these disciples into the storm. He did it. It's Jesus who said, we can't deny it, it's there in black and white, let us go over to the other side of the lake. It was his idea. Now we can ask the question, did Jesus have any idea what they were getting into? And the answer is obviously, yes, he did. It didn't take him by surprise. God is not taken by surprise. It took the disciples by surprise. They clearly weren't expecting it. Remember, a number of them were fishermen. They knew this lake like the back of their hands. And believe me, if they thought that this enormous storm was coming, they'd have taken Jesus to one side. They weren't shy about talking to Jesus and said, whoa, not a good idea. You're a landlubber. You're a carpenter. You don't know this lake like we do. We're not leaving the shore. Okay, that's what they would have said. If you're not familiar with the Sea of Galilee, it's about 21 kilometers long. It's about 11 kilometers wide. It sits in a depression, which is 215 meters below sea level. It's surrounded by hills, which rise up to what we might call mountains, 650 meters above sea level. If my math is correct, that's 830 meters from the top of the mountain to the, the, the level of the water. And when the winds come, they funnel down these mountains and these hills, and they hit that lake, and it becomes a sudden, violent, unpredictable, unexpected storm. It's a very common occurrence. And what a storm that was. These fishermen, they feared for their lives. So on the surface, doesn't it seem a little bit crazy to you that, that the sovereign Lord intentionally led them directly into this storm? Is that what we expect from Jesus? Oh, he'd never do that, we say. You know, I've heard people say this. I've had the privilege of being a, a full-time pastor for 30-plus years. And I've heard people say in the middle of a trial, the Lord, the Lord, he didn't cause the trial. He only allowed it. 
Some might even go a bit further and they say, Satan, not God, caused this tragedy. Have you been there? I think that perhaps they think that by blaming Satan, they're letting God off the hook. They're, they're not letting God get an egg on his divine face. I mean, why, why would you do that? Because you're, you're frightened that people think that this God that you follow is not powerful enough to stop the storm or he's not loving enough to care that you're in it. And so we make excuses for God. But the problem is we do so at the expense of God's sovereignty. And that's a very bad equation. We're making him less than almighty if we make excuses for these things. The Bible clearly, the Bible actually unashamedly claims that God is simultaneously both holy and sovereign and holy and loving. Now, of course, God does use Satan and his minions to bring trials. Just ask Job. And he uses them to punish his people. Babylonians come rushing in and take out the southern kingdom of Judah, for example. But again, and I've given you this reference in your notes. It appears many times in the scriptures, but I've just taken two verses to illustrate this. Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. Just listen to these words. God speaking, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity, yay, we say, but look at the next bit, and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things, not just the half, not just the light and the prosperity, but the darkness and the disaster. I do them all. He's not ashamed to admit to this. Friends, we will never find any comfort in our trials if we deny God's sovereignty. We'll only be comforted if we affirm God's absolute holy sovereignty and his unfailing holy love. Well, this storm teaches us a number of things about our lives and life storms. And we're reminded, for example, that storms can come suddenly, they come out of the blue, and they wallop us. You go, I didn't see that one coming. And right now, some of you, lucky few of you, your life is really good at the moment. It's smooth sailing. I don't wish this on you, but you really don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, let alone tomorrow or six months down the road. Something unexpected can happen. That phone call could occur, and you will find yourself in the middle of an unexpected crisis. Storms also test and they develop our character. But here's the scary bit. In the midst of a storm, they reveal our character to others. The facade is stripped away. A picture. I love drinking coffee. I haven't had one today that could explain a lot. And, and picture me with my mug of coffee. It's filled too full. I always put more in and then I want to put my milk in. And I should put the milk. Anyway, uh, anyway, I'm going along and then somebody accidentally bumps into me. What happens? The coffee comes out. I mean, that's fairly obvious. You're going to go, why is he stating the obvious? Because it makes me sound good. But here's what happens when someone bumps into you and offends you. Or when a storm of life assails you. Then what spills out of you at that moment is what is inside you. And the world gets to see the real you for better or for worse. And we find ourselves saying, oops, I don't know where that came from. That's not the real me. How many times have we heard that phrase? 
And the truth is that is the real you. You've just kept it covered up for a very long time. But now it's been revealed. Now what that means is the best time to develop our character and our maturity that we're going to need to ride these storms, whether they come suddenly or build up over time, but they're coming, believe me, is before they strike. If you don't develop your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the calm times of life, you won't know him, nor will you know how to trust him in the storms. So we learn that storms can hit suddenly, But here's a wake-up call. Storms hit believers. There's some people who think, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing's going to happen. But storms hit those people who had Jesus actually in their boat. I mean, physically there in this case. Mark's uh, telling of this story tells us the storms hit other boats, which were also on the lake that day. Jesus wasn't physically present with them. Now, if this was a fairy tale, you know how I'd write it. Jesus in their boat sailed serenely through the storm. They weren't touched. Not even a raindrop fell upon them. Whereas all the other boats were swamped with water and they sank. Dun, dun, dun. Lesson of the story, have Jesus in your boat. The truth is Christians are not magically exempted from the storms and trials of life. Just because Jesus is in your boat, or actually probably better to be in Jesus' boat, but that way around it doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing. But let's just drill down a bit further because what we see is that this particular storm hit obedient disciples. This isn't just, oh, I'm following Jesus, but I could be being disobedient at the moment and that got me into trouble. These guys were being obedient and Jesus still led them directly into the storm. And when I read that, I think, well, that's great. Thanks, Jesus. Obviously, being obedient to you puts me smack dab in the middle of trouble. I would be better off being disobedient and staying on the, on the shore. Dangerous, isn't it? I don't think we would be, but you know, that's the way we can think. I'm not following him. He's dangerous. Ask Paul, wherever Paul went, two things happened. Revival or a, re- a sort of a rebellion, a riot. It was a fun being around Paul, but it wasn't like nothing happened. Now, Jesus, of course, sets the example for us, doesn't he? He led the way. He said to his father, not my will be done, but yours. And then he went obediently into the heart of the worst storm ever on the cross. Of course, it's one thing for the Lord to deliberately lead them and obediently lead them into the storm. But it gets even worse and more puzzling is the fact that he checked out during the storm. He leaves them to battle it all by himself. This is the only time we actually get a specific mention of Jesus asleep. I reckon he he slept most days, but there he is asleep. It shows that he's fully human, but it shows us two important things here. First, that he was exhausted. That's okay, guys. He'd done a lot of extensive ministry. But second, and this goes back to my opening statement, it shows that he was totally confident in his father's protection. He knew the storm was coming, but he believes that the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God will provide and protect. But that said, what a great time to fall asleep, Jesus. You know, wouldn't it have been better if you'd been up there with them, getting wet, trying to pull on ropes, whatever they do on boats, and saying helpful things like, hang in, guys, we're going to make it. Wouldn't they felt better about that? 
But just when they needed his calm assurance, he zonked out at the back of the boat, oblivious to everything. (laughs) On a serious note, have you been there? I've been there. Middle of the storm, things are going completely crazy. And I go, where are you? Have you gone AWOL? Have you left me alone? Have you had that moment when you pray and it just bounces back off the ceiling? Well, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're bailing out the water like crazy and the waves are just overwhelming the boat and you're about to sink and you're about to drown and you're saying, where are you? So we go back to the passage because that's why it's there. And we say, oh, but the truth is there. The wonderful truth, the encouraging truth is the Lord was with them in the storm because he's promised that although it might appear that he's not with us, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now, I admit, sometimes he waits till we're at the wit's end, doesn't he? I'm right at the end of the rope. I'm just holding on. Fingertip stuff. It reveals to me how desperately I need him. But no no matter what, by the Holy Spirit, he's always with us. For good reason, we celebrate that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So the very first thing we've got to do when we find ourselves in the storm of life is to affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord over any and every storm. And that same Jesus is with us and for us. And how do we do that? We do it by reaffirming our trust. Here we go in the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who will provide for us and who will protect us at all times. Now, I put myself in the disciples' shoes for a bit, and I think if ever there was a time legitimately to panic, this could be it. I'm in the major storm, the boat's being swamped, and I'm about to drown. And if you don't know me, I actually can't swim. I can float, but I'm not great at swimming. Okay, so I mean, it's not great. But Jesus rebukes not only the storm, but the disciples for their lack of faith. I've told you that storms have a habit of exposing things. Perhaps the most obvious thing they expose is our lack of trust in the Lord. That's why Jesus had to challenge them, where is your faith? Now, faith is not faith until it's tested. And everyone goes through testing, including Jesus. See, when the water's calm, we can fake it. I can impress anybody in calm water. But the storm reveals how much I've been trusting in my own painfully inadequate resources. Storms also have a way of exposing my selfishness, my self-focus. I don't know whether you watch the sitcom Seinfeld. I do find it a bit of a giggle. And there's that guy, George, who I probably associate more with than I should. And, and George is there at a children's party, and he sees smoke, and he shouts, fire! And then the next thing you see him doing is he's pushing all the kids out of the way because he's going to be the first to leave the house. See, when the disciples said to, to Jesus, um, hey, Jesus, uh, master, master, they said, we are perishing. The we probably included Jesus. Yeah. 
But I suspect first and foremost in their, in their minds was, we're in trouble, Jesus. We are in trouble. You've got to do something about it. They're fe- fearing first and foremost for themselves. You see, believe me, I can virtue signal with the best of you until I realize it's going to cost me. And at that point, every man for himself. Okay, women and children first. Great idea until I'm on the Titanic. Okay, that's where I'm at. And with self-centeredness comes self-pity. That's another sure sign that we've got a distorted view of ourselves. Anytime I indulge in a pity party, a woe-is-me attention-grabbing moment, a look-at-moi. <laughs> Anytime I put myself at the center of attention, we need to hit the pause button, we need to stop, we need to breathe, we need to say, hang on, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus. Take your eyes off me. I don't, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It's Jesus we're going to look at. We get a big picture of what Jesus can do and who he is. So storms reveal our distorted view of Jesus. That's why the disciples asked in awe, who is this? And that actually was their biggest problem, wasn't it? They didn't really get who Jesus was. If they'd known, they wouldn't have been so amazed at what happened. I mean, think about this. The very same God who said, let us go over to the other side of the lake, had previously commanded, let there be light. And there was. And so believe me, those disciples were going across across the lake. That's a non-negotiable. God has said so. Really, the only question was, how comfortable was the trip going to be? Was it going to be above the water, through the water, or under the water? But they're going across the lake because God has said so. They underestimated Jesus. And as a result, they underestimated both his power and his presence. And we do the same thing when we panic in a crisis. We try and solve the problem ourselves. We figure everything into the equation except the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And we can sincerely believe we're trusting in the Lord. We can pass the lie detector test until the storm hits and then we realize that all along... We've been trusting in our bank balance, or our health, or our job, or the number of likes we get on Instagram. How big is your God? Have you put him in a box? Is he that small? Personally, my God is infinite. I follow the most high God, the Lord Almighty. But again, I can hear the disciples protesting, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. We were trusting in the Lord. That's why we woke him up. That's why we pleaded with him to save us. But clearly that wasn't faith because Jesus rebuked them and said, where is your faith? What they needed most in this dire situation was to trust the living God. And that is what we need most too. Now, the Bible talks about three types of faith. I've given you this in your notes. There's believing faith. That's the faith we all need to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and be born again. And Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us that this believing faith is given to us by God so that no one can boast. No one can say and claim that they made any contribution to their salvation, including the faith needed to believe. None of us had that. We had to be given it. That's why no one can excuse themselves. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't have your faith. Doesn't make sense. God will give it to you. 
Second faith, the faith for miracles, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. The Holy Spirit gives all of these spiritual gifts, including this, this gift of faith. But we see in verse 11 that he gives them just as he determines. The gifts that you have received is because the Holy Spirit determined that you would have them, which means that we don't get jealous of what somebody else has got and we don't get proud of what we have. And so it means that no one can boast. It's a gift. But the third is the day-to-day faith. That's the one we choose to use. It's like a muscle we have to exercise. We have to believe day-to-day in the promises of our good and our holy God. And Jesus told us that this faith has to be the size of a grain of mustard seed. That's the faith Jesus is referring to when he asked, where is your faith? Now, notice what Jesus didn't ask them. He didn't ask them, how big is your faith? Why not? Because he couldn't care less. It's not about how big your faith is. It's about where or in whom have you placed your faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith is a four-letter word. Spelt S-U-R-E. Sure. You see, ultimately, it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's your faith in God's faithfulness that matters. You're putting your faith in the faithful one. Will he be faithful? I put my mustard seed faith in him. Will the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God provide and protect you in the storms, in the trials, in the setbacks, and in the suffering of life? And the answer is yes. And you can be sure of this, and you can be confident of this. And that, my friends, is faith. Just as an aside, Jesus only commended two people for their great faith, a centurion and a Canaanite mum, both of them Gentiles, not Jews. Which means that by inference, having great faith is very rare. It's unusual. And you know what? This is very comforting. The Father knows that. So here's the bit that I like. It means there's great value in weak faith. Yay, everybody nod. Okay, that includes me. I mean, however weak or indeed non-existent the faith of the disciples was, at least they woke up Jesus. At least they did that. And even though he rebuked them for not using the faith that they did have, he still heard their cries and he still calmed the storm. So be encouraged. Though your faith may be weak, it will still be sufficient for you to go confidently to Jesus. He will hear your cry. He will answer your prayer. But faith in the Lord is not an automatic thing. It's something we have to choose to exercise. I find it helpful to remind myself on occasions of how God has been faithful to me and to others. It's one of the reasons that I read the scriptures every morning. Because when I see how God helped the Jews and other such people in their hopeless and difficult situations, it raises my faith. And then I choose to pray out loud. I put my confidence in my promise-keeping, covenant-keeping Father. The crucial question is actually uttered by the disciples. Who is this? Clearly, Jesus was fully human, 
He had a body. He got so exhausted he could sleep in the midst of this storm. But not only is he fully human, he's also fully divine. He simply spoke and the winds ceased and the waves stopped. I'm told by the clever people that instant stopping of wind can happen, but not water. You see, the waves should keep going because of something called kinetic energy. I'm not out of my depth when it comes to science, but I hope someone's nodding. Kinetic energy keeps the waves going, but in this case, all was calm. And this in particular is what freaked out the disciples. So Jesus' full humanity encourages us because he understands suffering on a personal level. But his full deity also encourages us because he is powerful to act on our behalf. Nothing is too difficult for the living God. Not a breath of wind, not a drop of water can defy his sovereign will. The better we know him, the better we can trust him in our trials. I guarantee that if you actively trust the Lord Jesus in your current trial, your faith will be strengthened to trust him in the next storm. But whilst the wind and the water, they had no option. They had to obey the Lord Jesus. Now, that, was, that was the way it is. We, of course, have free will. We can choose to disobey. And the reality is, all too often we do. So notice first, the disciples were fearing the storm, and then they feared the Lord. Do you see what happened? They feared the storm because of their lack of faith. They feared the Lord because now they're in awe of his power. I wrote this talk. I put an amen at that point. I thought, I've covered it. I'll expect a big round of applause. And then the Holy Spirit said, typical, half a job. What? Half a job? What do you mean? There's an elephant in the room and you've skirted around it. And there's a lot of people when you're speaking, they're nobody's fool. They know you've skirted around the elephant in the room. You have to at least talk about it even if you don't know the answers. And so, yeah, I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room. And some of you are going like, thank you. That's really what I wanted to hear. Because here's the truth. Sometimes the boat sinks, even if we're trusting and obedient to Jesus. That's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Sometimes the phone call comes and says, it's stage four cancer. Sometimes you walk into the office and the boss says, come in. We don't need you anymore. Sometimes the letter arrives in the mail and the bill is so big, you go like, we, we can't do this. Sometimes the family breakup is so awful. Do I need to go on? John the Baptist wasn't delivered from prison, was he? He asked Jesus, why am I still here, effectively? He lost his head. Jesus had to go through the cross. Stephen was stoned. Do I have to go on? They, it happens, doesn't it? And in these extremely difficult times, what happens if you begin to doubt? Is there any room for questioning and uncertainty? I think about the father of the epileptic boy. Do you remember him? He said, Lord, I believe. That's faith. Help my lack of belief. That's doubt. What happened? The good news is Jesus 
healed his son. Friends, every Christian has doubts. They can be extremely tough. They can be very real. And that's okay. In fact, it's normal. If these doubts are wisely addressed, they often are a catalyst to spiritual growth. Now, most people believe, and this is the problem, that doubt is the opposite of faith. It isn't. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. And unbelief is a killer. Jesus could only perform a few miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. So unbelief is the willful refusal to believe, but doubt is the inner uncertainty. The word doubt has its roots in the word double. That's why there's a silent B in the word. It means to be in two minds about something. It means you're not sure. It's the middle ground between what you know is true, where you've placed your confidence and your faith, and what you know is false and you have rejected. And it's essential, therefore, to work through these middle ground issues. So many people mistakenly think that struggling with God means that they lack faith, but it's not true. Read the Psalms. It's okay to question God. Jesus will not rebuke you. His desire is to build up your faith. How big is your God? My God runs the universe without my help. My doubts are not going to upset him. Tell him your doubts. Cry out to him for help. Struggling with God is actually a sure sign that you do have faith. In fact, if you never struggle, you will never grow in your faith. The key is to believe your beliefs and to doubt your doubts. We get into trouble when this gets crossed over and we start believing our doubts and doubting our beliefs. And now we're in trouble. What we should do, of course, is to keep our eyes on Jesus But let me come back to the crucial question. What do we do if we trust in the Lord and the miracle doesn't happen and the boat still sinks? Well, then, my friend, we keep trusting in the Lord. And we worship Jesus even as we go under the water. We go down with our eyes on Jesus. We follow the example of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail We sing, we state our faith, and we can only do that if we have invested in our relationship with him. If we've discovered that it is true that he is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, then we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians chapter 1. Do you know Jesus in this way? If you don't, I beg you, seek him Now, don't wait until the storm hits. Trust him now as your Lord and your Savior, as your brother, as your friend, as your only hope for heaven. Learn to trust him daily with your mustard seed of faith in the small problems that you face so that when, not if, but when the hurricane hits, whether he instantly calms it or whether your boat sinks, You can know the peace the world cannot know. The peace that goes beyond understanding. The true peace that comes from trusting Jesus, the Lord over all of life's storms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise 
that no matter what happens, nothing can ever snatch us out of your hand or separate us from your love. We are so grateful. Lord Jesus, thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. As we keep our thoughts and eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, we invite you to be the Lord of every aspect of our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you for growing within us the spiritual fruit of peace. May we know the shalom in the midst of every storm. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, thanks for listening to the sermon today. If you found the message thought-provoking and inspiring, please feel free to rate our podcast so that we can better share the message of good news with others. This sermon was taken from the August 6, 2023 service at Trinity Church Streetsville in Mississauga, Ontario.